right, good afternoon, everybody. I'm uh, John Allen Gay. I'm the executive director of the John Quincy Adams Society. We're pleased to be uh, you know, with the, the Notre Dame Ash International Security Center uh, presenting this, uh, this event. You know, I, I imagine you, most of you here probably haven't heard of the John Quincy Adams Society. Uh, we're a new national network of student groups uh, focused on foreign policy and on new perspectives and grand strategy. And we have here our, uh, the co-directors of our chapter here at Notre Dame. We've got... Hi, I'm Jack Mulcair. I'm a, a first-year law student. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew Meerworth. I'm a second-year law student. Yeah, and so we're, uh, you know, we're getting started here at Notre Dame, and we'll have uh, some sign-up sheets that we can pass around. If you're interested in foreign policy and the kinds of conversations like the one we'll be having today, uh, you know, feel free to sign up and uh, keep in touch. But I think we've got a really great opportunity today. We've got with us Professor Walter McDougall, who is really one of the, uh, the best historians of U.S. foreign policy uh, out there today. And, you know, I'll just uh, read a bit of his bio. He, he is a Vietnam veteran and a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, historian. He is the professor of history uh, and international relations at the University of Pennsylvania, an alum of Amherst and the University of Chicago, uh, taught for many years at California Berkeley, uh, director of research at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and author of a uh, very wide range of books on history, uh, most famously, The Heavens and the Earth, A Political History of the Space Age, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1986. Uh, his books also include Let the Sea Make a Noise, A History of the North Pacific from Magellan to MacArthur, Promised Land, Crusader State, The American Encounter with the World Since 1776, Freedom Just Around the Corner, A New American History, 1585 to 1828, and Throes of Democracy, the American Civil War Era, 1829 to 1877. And he has a new book out now, which is available for sale, uh, I believe right outside the door. It's called The Tragedy of U.S. Foreign Policy, How America's Civil Religion Betrayed the National Interest. So if everybody could please welcome uh, Professor Walter McDougall. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming out. Uh, thank you, John, for the introduction. Thank you, Michael Desch, for uh, hosting, uh, hosting me here at Notre Dame. This is my first visit to Notre Dame. I'm kind of ashamed to say I grew up in Chicago. You'd think I'd have been to Notre Dame before. Um, but uh, in all these years, no, I never had. And so this is my first visit. It's a lovely, magnificent campus and um, a great intellectual community. And I am absolutely delighted to be here, particularly because it was so hard to get here. <laughs> I had a day of travel from hell yesterday, uh, trying to get through the De Detroit airport, and uh, with all kinds of cancellations and mess-ups, Delta Airlines did not do itself proud. Uh, uh, but I finally made it, and I'm very, very relieved to be here. Now. I'm going to talk about my new book primarily, but I'm also going to target my, my remarks, the last half of the lecture primarily. I'm going to focus in on what I have to say about John Quincy Adams, for obvious reasons. 
Now, readers today and certainly in the future will assume that the author of this book intended it to be, oh, a kind of a swan song, a somber reflection by an aging historian about his nation's ascent to great power and glory only to watch the power and glory be sacrificed through nemesis, through hubris and nemesis. In other words, a kind of 21st century reprise of Thucydides. But nothing could be further from the truth because I never intended to write this book at all. Following the publication in 2004 and 07 of my two lengthy narratives on the American founding and then the American Civil War era, I expected to complete the trilo a trilogy of books uh, with a volume on the progressive era that would trace America's rise to world power. Instead, HarperCollins terminated the project on the grounds that my books were critical successes, meaning they didn't sell. <laughs> and I acquiesced because, frankly, those tomes, which totaled over 1,300 pages, had worn me out. So I decided to lie fallow for a few years and then maybe write a sequel or revised edition of an earlier work, <clears throat> Promised Land, Crusader State, The American Encounter with the World, since 1776. Not that it needed correction. On the contrary, that book proved prophetic, yeah, even marked by Cassandra's curse. For in it, I urged Americans to return to the foreign policy principles of our once modest republic, lest its half century of emergency mobilization as a crusader state destroy forever its original identity as a promised land. For instance, I wrote back in 1997, everyone agrees Saddam Hussein is bad for his country, but can Americans be better Iraqis than Iraqis themselves? Or presume to tell the Chinese how to be better Chinese? If we try, we could only be poorer Americans. Huh, well, no wonder I felt compelled to revisit the themes of that book after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 uh, and the hyperbolic U.S. response to them. But Houghton Mifflin, the, the publisher of that volume, also showed no interest in a follow-on to a book that hadn't been a bestseller to begin with. And that left me in a quandary because I'd already arranged for a sabbatical in 2012 and an outside grant to fund it. I had to write something, but what? So even as I spent that year frantically catching up on 15 years of new scholarship on uh, American diplomatic history, I remained clueless about where the research might lead, if anywhere. At length, a friend and mentor in old age, my personal owl of Minerva, came to the rescue. I'd gotten into the delightful habit of lunching once or twice a month with Professor James Kurth of Swarthmore College, a brilliant political scientist and, it turned out, a very shrewd psychologist. For months, he listened patiently while I agonized about my dilemma before making a, a suggestion. Write what you know and care about. Write what truly expresses Walter McDougall. 
You mean, I haltingly answered, American civil religion? Exactly, said he. Kurth had heard me speculate at various times about reinterpreting U.S. foreign policy through the lens of civil religion. I like to call it American diplomatic history in the metaphysical mode. Kurth knew that I'd begun teaching a seminar called In Search of the American Civil Religion, and his timing was perfect. Yes, I realized, such a book would not only be important and timely, but also, I foolishly thought, fun and easy to write. Moreover, the topic would give me a chance to settle some scores by rebutting Robert Kagan's awful book called Dangerous Nation, which appeared in 2007. Indeed, that militant neoconservative history seemed to me a perfect example of the fallacy known as prolepsis, essentially reading history backwards. Because Kagan claimed U.S. foreign policy had always pointed toward a messianic calling to redeem the whole world. Therefore, 2007, the Bush Doctrine and the Freedom Agenda in the Middle East were as American as apple pie. Kagan even had the temerity to publish an article declaring George Washington was a neocon. Well, his transparent purpose was to purge from our foreign policy discourse the so-called crabbed conservatism of realists like George Kennan and implicitly the author of Promised Land Crusader State, in other words, moi. And so, for reasons of professionalism, personal interest, and peak, I set out to deconstruct our evolving civil religion and trace its influence on foreign policy. What I discovered, as weeks turned to months, turned to years, was this was a really difficult book to get right, which is why it took five anxious years. But here, at last, is the result. My original title, which I thought pretty edgy, was American Heresies, Civil Religion and Foreign Affairs Since 1776. But the marketing mavens at Yale Press, I haven't had a real happy history with publishers, even uh, balked, balked at the word heresies and even at the phrase civil religion because they said, Readers won't even know what those words mean. Well, a war of attrition then ensued, after which, <laughs> after which I finally settled on this title, which I don't like, but there it is, um, particularly because it includes uh, another fallacy, the pathetic fallacy, how American civil religion betrayed the national. It wasn't civil religion, it was an abstract uh, notion, uh, you know, uh, it, it, you, you can't endow an abstract notion with human qualities. It's the purveyors or the interpreters um, or uh, uh, the, um, the, the uh, exploiters of civil religion who have betrayed the national interest, but uh, to heck with it, you know, so be it. What is civil religion? Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, introduced the concept in his 1762 treatise, The Social Contract. He meant to describe the faith that can bind together citizens of a republic who have thrown off their age-old thraldom to throne and altar. 
But in reality, throne and altar are two sides of the same coin, because nearly every regime in history has claimed some sort of spiritual legitimacy as well as secular authority. Consider the god kings or pharaohs of antiquity in the Middle East, or the mandate of heaven in East Asian dynasties, or the sultans of Islam, or the ancient and or Renaissance city-states, all of whom had their patron gods or patron saints, or the divine right of kings, or the state-controlled churches of early modern Europe. The most obvious example of the melding of church and state was post-Reformation England. What, after all, is the Anglican church, if not a civil religion? Well, here is sociologist Ellis West's pithy definition, quote, a civil religion is a set of beliefs and attitudes that explain the meaning and purpose of any given political society in terms of its relationship to a transcendent spiritual reality, which are held by the people generally and expressed in public rituals, myths, and symbols, unquote. That transcendent spiritual reality is what distinguishes civil religion from idolatrous ideologies like fascism and communism. Americans did not worship their government. They recognized, as James Monroe wrote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And since it was axiomatic, human beings are flawed, the framers of the Constitution carefully checked and balanced the powers of government. No, what Americans worshipped was a deity, a deity whose theology was a rich amalgam of Protestantism and Enlightenment reason, the deity who made them one out of many, a new order for the ages, and who blessed their undertakings, to quote the Latin phrases inscribed on the great seal of the United States. Well, for over 200 years, Americans took all that for granted, so much so that even as they practiced what I call a divine right republicanism, they never acknowledged that civil faith until 1967, when Berkeley sociologist Robert Bella published his, his seminal essay, American Civil Religion, in the journal Daedalus. Well, that inspired about 20 years, roughly, of books and articles on the rhetoric and the impact of civil religion over 200 years. But I missed out on all that literature because my own consciousness of civil religion didn't really emerge until my research for Promised Land Crusader State and especially my 2004 book, Freedom Just Around the Corner. It was then that I came to see, yes, Yes, the War of Independence, it really was a holy war because the colonial patriots risked their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor in the belief they were actors in a play scripted by the author of history, capital A, capital H. Who was that author? Most churched Americans readily assumed the God watching out for their country was the same one they worshiped on Sunday morning. But the American God really had no name, or a hundred vaguely Unitarian names. 
from President Washington to President Andrew Jackson, he was referred to in the inaugural addresses as the Father of Lights, Supreme Architect, Almighty Being, Invisible Hand, Patron of Order, Fountain of Justice, Infinite Power, or just Providence. And for a surprising percentage of founders, he was also the Freemasons G, the God whose name is geometry and whose watchful eye oversees the unfinished pyramid that appears on our great seal, and also on the reverse of your $1 bills to this day. If Americans had ever fallen to quarreling over the identity of their national God, the, the Union might not have survived. So the Constitution was silent about religion. Not because the revolution was secular, but because it was civil religious. The No Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, I think, really did establish what I call the classical American civil religion, whose gospels included the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, and whose epistles included the presidential inaugural addresses and other prominent speeches. Well, what was the origin, the etiology of this ACR, this American civil religion? Well, we baby boomers grew up learning, it was the learning from Perry Miller and Daniel Borston and a host of textbooks, that John Winthrop's 1630 sermon to the Puritan founders of New England was kind of the keynote address of American political culture with its unique notions of exceptionalism and heavenly mission. And I see there is a new book out from a professor at Yale that appears, I haven't read it yet, but from the review, it appears to sort of reprise this old argument. Well, that was the conventional wisdom back during the Cold War, when Americans needed to be persuaded by their elites to undertake global commitments. Well, today we know better about the, the place of John Winthrop's sermon in history thanks to an historian named Richard Gamble, whose remarkable book, In Search of the City on a Hill, The Making and Unmaking of an American Myth, has proven that the civil religious trope derived from Winthrop's sermon was forgotten. It wasn't even published for 150 years. And then it was ignored by historians, politicians, everybody for another 100 years. It was only uh, beginning with Perry Miller around the middle of the 20th century that it, that it became this great trope uh, of, of American, um, uh, of American uh, political uh, culture. In other words, Winthrop's sermon was an artifact of America the Crusader state, not an archetype of America the promised land. But anyway, getting off the point, meanwhile, uh, you know, I'm doing my research, I've discovered the reality of the civil religion, and I had begun to trace the ACR back to its real source, which was, not surprisingly, the British civil religion, painfully crafted over 175 years of Tudor Stuart history. First, the English tamed their church by placing their monarch at its head instead of the Pope. 
Then they tamed the monarch in the glorious revolution of 1688, establishing parliamentary supremacy. And then, under the Whig establishment of the 18th century, the British people embarked on their stunning career overseas, imbued with four imperial spirits. First one was rural and commercial capitalism. The second was a rabid anti-Catholicism. The third was an uh, aggressive imperial rivalry against other Catholic powers, France and Spain. And the fourth was a kind of right of eminent domain. John Locke argued this over lands occupied by indigent peoples, peoples like the Irish and Indians in North America, they, they, their land was forfeit because they didn't do anything with it. God didn't intend us to run around the woods hunting deer uh, or, uh, uh, or, um, uh, uh, or you know, be indigent Irishmen um, on their uh, boggy, boggy farms. Uh, they're not developing the land the way a good Englishman does. Well, no one imbibed those four spirits more deeply than the settlers in the 13 American colonies. But following Britain's conquest of Quebec in 1763, Crown and Parliament adjusted to their new imperial responsibilities by enacting tolerance for French Catholics, enacting protection for Native Americans against pioneer expansion, and enacting all sorts of new taxes and regulations on the 13 colonies. So to the colonists, it seemed the British were violating all their own imperial spirits. The British had become heretics in their own church. So hot-headed patriots, and not just the New England Puritans, but Quakers in the Delaware Valley, Cavalier planters on the Chesapeake, and the Scots-Irish bordermen on the frontier rebelled. Those four cradle cultures, who, which were loving, have been lovingly examined in David Hackett Fisher's book, Albion's Seed, expressed their own definitions of liberty, but they all had cause to resist British authority. And after the War of Independence, all four cultures collaborated on a constitution that accommodated in remarkable fashion the Puritan notion of liberty, which was ordered liberty under law, the Quakers live and let live freedom of conscience, the Cavaliers aristocratic notion of hierarchical liberty, and the wild libertarianism of the Scots-Irish. In foreign policy, however, the first and greatest high priest of the classical ACR was George Washington. It's sobering, really sobering, to revisit the precepts of his farewell address and recall Americans, once upon a time, held them sacred. Washington's model was Moses, whose farewell address in the book of Deuteronomy promised the Israelites they would thrive in their land of milk and honey if they obeyed the Lord's commandments, but they would be cast out and become a byword if they worshiped other gods. Likewise, Washington gave his people commandments. One, jealously to preserve individual liberty and national unity. Two, 
educate, uh, cultivate religion and morality. Three, cherish the public credit. Oh gosh, we've forgotten that one, haven't we? Four, observe good faith, peace, and harmony with all nations. Five, avoid inveterate antipathies or attachments toward foreign countries. And six, shun foreign alliances except in emergencies. Washington prophesied that so long as Americans heeded those precepts, their nation would grow and prosper beyond measure. But do you know what Robert Kagan had to say about that? He claimed Washington didn't really mean it. He said Washington really meant Americans just had to follow those rules for maybe a generation, 30 years or so, until the United States had grown mighty enough to dictate terms to the outside world. And that laid the basis for Kagan's further claim to the effect John Quincy Adams didn't really mean it when he told Congress in 1821, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. The proof text Kagan employed to buttress that idiosyncratic argument was an 1817 letter in which Adams writes, the universal feeling of Europe in witnessing the gigantic growth of our population and power is that we shall, if united, become a very dangerous member of the society of nations, unquote. Well, I parsed that the context and the timing of that letter from every angle. And I concluded it had to mean the opposite of what Kagan claimed it meant. Adams was suggesting that if Americans remained true to Washington's precepts, they would soon provide so great an example of liberty and prosperity that Europeans themselves would come to question the legitimacy of their monarchical governments. But, Adams warned, if Americans allowed sectionalism to tear the Union asunder, then they would become dangerous to themselves. My book goes on to trace the transformation or deformation, as James Kurth calls it, of American Protestantism and civil religion over the two centuries uh, since uh, uh, that time. I tell in the book, <coughs> Uh, how the Civil War marked a schism uh, that eventuated in the imposition of a new Republican orthodoxy, which I term the neoclassical ACR. Neoclassical neo ACR. Neo in domestic government, the, 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 the so-called Second Revolution, American Revolution, as historians call uh, the, 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 act, the new activism of the federal government under, uh, under the Republicans after uh, Lincoln, but still classical, because American foreign policy did not change for another generation. Despite rapid industrialization, urbanization, mass immigration, only in the 1890s, with the rise of the secular progressive movement, and a concomitant religious movement known as the social gospel, did Americans begin to imagine that God Almighty had another mission in store for them, a mission to export 
and if necessary, force their own institutions and values on the nations of Latin America, then the Pacific, then Europe during two world wars, and finally, the whole world. Beginning with the Spanish-American War in 1898 and continuing throughout the 20th century, the United States embraced a progressive and then a neo-progressive ACR that willingly discarded all of Washington's precepts, every one, <clears throat> and embraced uh, instead during the eras of Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, and then after World War II under the Cold War presidents, a new progressive ACR um, that held out the vision of a kind of heaven on earth. That once America finally triumphs in the world wars, and then as Kennedy promised in the long twilight struggle of the Cold War, on that glorious uh, come and get a day when communism will finally collapse, uh, as, we, as we know it will because God, God intends it, uh, then the whole world will come to embrace American values and institutions. We've lived through that era. We call it globalization. And, uh, and uh, so all, this whole long evolution uh, or deformation of American civil religion was to culminate in a millennial ACR, which would double as the first global civil religion. Alas, that, that global civil religion has uh, come awry um, uh, 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 just as Wilson's uh, original progressive civil religion went off the rails uh, uh, in the first two decades of the 20th century. But that whole story, which I've just summarized very quickly, is not the story I'm going to tell you today. Because some of you, at least, have joined Professor Desch and I hope some other faculty in celebrating the greatest statesman of the classical ACR era, when the United States still conducted a foreign policy of prudence, restraint, respect, and reciprocity toward all other nations while vigorously defending its legitimate national interests. The story I'm going to tell is best introduced by describing the world inherited by President James Monroe and his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, in 1817. Peace had finally returned to Europe after the wars of the French Revolution and Napoleon. At the 1815 Congress of Vienna, delegations from Great Britain, the Austrian and Russian empires, the Kingdom of Prussia, and the restored Kingdom of France upheld the principle of dynastic legitimacy, they compromised on territorial issues, they calibrated a balance of power among themselves, and they pledged to concert their diplomacy, to cooperate in the future, to prevent any future revolutions and wars. This Metternichian system named for Austria's foreign minister, would prove too reactionary for the liberal British 
who soon distanced themselves from the Continental powers. But to call the conservative Congress of Vienna system a foretaste of 20th century totalitarianism, as Robert Kagan did in his book, talk about prolepsis, is just absurd. The real totalitarian foretaste, if there, if there was such a thing, had been the French revolutionary regimes. The radical Jacobins, the dictatorial, military dictatorial Napoleon. And it was the recurrent, it was the recurrence of such hideous regimes that the Vienna system was designed to prevent. And yet, Americans of that era, bursting with Republican pride, did damn the Holy Alliance. The Holy Alliance, they called it, as a kind of an, uh, an ignorant shorthand for the whole Vienna system. While Americans ignored, or just didn't notice, the tremendous blessing which the Congress of Vienna had bestowed on the United States. By ensuring the survival of a balance of power among the Europeans, and indeed it was a balance of power that would last for a century, the Europeans inadvertently freed up the United States from any concerns about, um, about rivalries with other great powers, and therefore were free to expand across the continent and, uh, and develop it. No modern nation, except maybe Brazil, has enjoyed such geopolitical advantages as the United States did in the century after 1815. And since only Americans could risk those advantages through gratuitous aggravation of foreign powers, the wise course was to practice a strategy of self-containment with regard to the old world. And likewise, what old world power was most able to pursue a containment strategy against the United States? It was Great Britain the world's greatest sea power, and also, of course, the ruler of Canada. And so, the first problem of neighborhood was how to expand the Anglo-American truce, which concluded the War of 1812, concomitant with the climax of the wars against Napoleon, how to expand that truce into a permanent peace pact based on the demarcation and demilitarization of the U.S.-Canadian border. And that task was accomplished quickly in the Rush-Badgett Rush Accords of 1817-1818. The second problem of neighborhood was how the U.S. should relate to the regimes emerging to the south from the wreckage of the Spanish Empire. That task preoccupied John Quincy Adams. Let me say a few words about John Quincy. Can you imagine being homeschooled by John and Abigail Adams? If you can, then you won't be surprised at the brilliance, erudition, integrity, precocity, and piety of John Quincy. His curriculum as a child included six foreign languages, 
Greek and Roman classics, history both ancient and modern, political theory, and the Bible, which he got up to read every day before dawn. His education also included 17 years in European capitals on and off, beginning in 1778 when he clerked as an 11-year-old for his father in Paris. While back, at, back home, John Quincy took two degrees from Harvard and began a law practice. But in 1793, he wrote two anonymous, but everybody knew who wrote them, uh, two anonymous pieces, the so-called Marcellus and Columbus letters, which defended Washington's declaration of neutrality toward the wars of the French Revolution. And these letters were so eloquent and impressed President Washington so much that he in turn persuaded Vice President John Adams to persuade his 27-year-old son, John Quincy, to devote the rest of his life to public service. John Quincy's mother had drilled into him a motto from the Roman poet Horace about Roman mothers despising war. Bella matronis detestata. And the trinity of doctrines on which all morality rested. God's existence, the soul's immortality, and certain judgment to come. If you remove any of these, John Quincy instructed his own children, man's conscience would, quote, have no other law than that of the tiger or the shark, unquote. John Quincy's father taught him moral philosophy based on Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Machiavelli, Francis Bacon, and James Harrington, Alexander Pope, Montesquieu, and David Hume. John Quincy and the Adams family, of course, were Protestant to the core. John Quincy, accordingly, grew up believing in progress. And they were also Yankee to the core. And John Quincy grew up believing fervently in America's destiny. But he also knew the flawed nature of man. Utter depravity, the Calvinists call it, Catholics call it original sin, and the amoral nature of politics. He knew that these conditions, these facts of life, imposed clear limits to the nation's moral authority in world affairs. Hence, the wise statesman must stoically accept Alexander Pope's depiction of man as, quote, placed in this isthmus of a middle state a being darkly wise and rudely great, sole judge of truth, yet in endless error hurled, the glory, the jest, the riddle of the world." Unquote. In sum, John Quincy developed a tragic sense of politics. Similar to in the 20th century, if there is anyone you can liken him to, it might be Reinhold Niebuhr. Christian realism. He rejected both the twin temptations of delusory messianism, 
or hypocritical pretense. His father, John Adams, had put it this way in 1814. They were both adults, obviously, at the time, getting on in years, in fact. Quote, we may boast that we are the chosen people. We may even thank God that we are not like other men. But, after all, it would be but flattery, the delusion, the self-deceit of the Pharisee, unquote. Well, scrupulous analysis and self-examination enabled John Quincy to imagine what a democratic foreign policy might look like in a fallen world. He reflected on such questions as whether internal or external affairs should take precedence in government, whether foreign engagements were really compatible with Republican principles, self-government and whether popular governments could ever pursue wise policies given that their citizens were constantly buffeted by faction, emotion, impatience. And in every case, John Quincy came down on the side of a principled realism. While he placed American values, quote, upon the adamantine rock of human rights, unquote, he also insisted, quote, the purpose of our foreign policy is not to bring enlightenment or happiness to the rest of the world, but to ensure the life, liberty, and happiness of the American people, unquote. He believed the United States had a calling to be exemplary, but must shun tempting crusades. The fanatical cry, let justice be done, though the world perish. Fiat justitia periat mundus might occasionally have appealed to someone like Jefferson, but it abominated John Quincy Adams. In 1776, when the 13 British colonies declared themselves an alternative to European imperial rule, the problem of neighborhood, neighborhood first emerged. But it, uh, because at that very time in 1776, the long languid retreat of Spanish power in the Americas was also well advanced. But the spark that ignited armed revolt among colonial elites against Spain was Napoleon's invasion of Spain itself in 1808 with their mother country in, uh, under foreign occupation, why a Latin juntos sprang up and uh, uh, began to declare independence. Of course, their boundaries and their very regimes were constantly up for grabs. Liberty under law, as North Americans understood, was rarely in evidence. What was the destiny of these other Americans? Should the United States court the Latin American revolutionaries, perhaps even invite them into their own union? Or were they really unfit for self-government? John Adams, frankly, spoke the conventional wisdom when he called the Latin Americans, quote, the most ignorant, the most bigoted, the most superstitious of all the Roman Catholics in Christendom. Unquote. John Adams thought state-building efforts 
in South America, quote, as absurd as similar plans would be to establish democracies among the birds, beasts, and fishes, unquote. Not very politically correct. Um, uh, but if the United States did not annex or absorb the Latin American peoples, then the United States would risk having to live with possibly hostile countries in, uh, in the neighborhood, or what is worse, client states of European powers in their neighborhood. The most immediate crisis arose in the province nearest the United States itself, derelict Florida. The sandy spit 360 miles wide was virtually unoccupied by Spain, save for St. Augustine, Florida, the fort, the fort there, and a few motley garrisons. Otherwise, Florida was a swampy refugee, uh, sorry, refuge for marauding Seminole Indians, for fugitive slaves, and for pirates. Georgians and Alabamans across the border complained ever more loudly about lawless Florida until John C. Calhoun's War Department authorized Tennessee Militia Chief Andrew Jackson to deal with the problem. Well, Old Hickory dealt with the problem in a Jack very Jacksonian way. He called up the Tennessee Militia and invaded Spanish Florida, declared martial law, and prompted diplomatic protests from Spain and from Great Britain, two of whose subjects were summarily executed for gun running to the Indians. Secretary of State John Quincy was on, it was on his watch that all this happened. And what did he do? Did he apologize or did he pursue the national interest as he saw it? He wrote a long blistering defense that blamed Spain for the problems. Sort of side sidestepped Jackson's actions and said, let's look at the origin of this problem. It's the fact that there is no government in Florida. It's a lawless province. Spain claims it, but can't really control it. And by God, Spain better either police their province or else sell it to the United States. The beleaguered Spanish crown elected to bargain. Back in the 2000s, under the, obviously under the George W. Bush uh, uh, influence, some historians tried to argue Jackson's invasion of Florida was evidence that the Bush Doctrine's unilateral preemption was an old American tradition. Well, it's a very thin reed to bear such weight. Jackson's mission was retaliatory, not preemptive. It was punitive, not permanent. And, thanks to John Quincy Adams, it was used to excellent diplomatic effect, unlike most of the Bush preemptions. In, uh, in 1819, John Quincy Adams sat down with a Spanish uh, minister, uh, Luis de Onith, and negotiated the Transcontinental Treaty, in which Spain sold Florida, ceded its claims to the Northwest Coast, Oregon Territory, and fixed the boundary between Mexico and the Louisiana Purchase 
and points west all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Obviously, it would have been very impolitic for the United States to aid and abet the Latin American revolutionaries against Spain, Spain until this favorable treaty was ratified. And as it happened, a revolution in Spain it had, its, uh, had its, itself had delayed ratification. But is that fact sufficient to explain the famous July 4, 1821 address in which John Quincy proclaimed America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy? That is the, uh, is the argument that Kagan has made. But again, sorry, the answer is no. The Transcontinental Treaty had nothing to do with Adam's speech because by then it had been ratified. As James Monroe announced in his second inaugural address in March of 1821. Nevertheless, the timing of U.S. recognition of various independent Latin states was a matter of some dispute. Henry Clay, who became, of course, the great compromiser, a, 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 a great patriot, uh, a great Whig senator, um, and a three-time candidate for president, uh, Henry Clay uh, began life as a kind of a youthful idealist and a bit of a hothead. And as a young man, he stood up uh, in the year 1818 in the Congress and delivered a speech that lasted four days in hopes of persuading Congress to simply take Florida from the damned Spaniards by force and to recognize the South American rebels against Spain. Clay even likened Simon Bolivar to George Washington. Well, his resolution really amounted to a de facto declaration of war against Spain. And John Quincy Adams was hotly opposed to it. Um, and it, indeed, it got voted down, 45 to 115. But this resolution testified to Clay's ignorance, and indeed the ignorance of many Americans at the time, of the great cultural divide between North and South America. Clay wanted to call Simon Bolivar the George Washington of South America. But Bolivar had already pledged to wage, quote, a war to the death, unquote, and he beheaded a thousand Spanish prisoners of war. Bolivar had proclaimed, quote, our people are nothing like Europeans or North Americans. Indeed, we are more a mixture of Africa and America than we are the children of Europe, unquote. Bolivar rejected federalism in the belief that governing his people required strong central authority and a standing army. Bolivar dreamed of a United, United States of South America, the better to resist imperial pretensions from North America. Well, given all those deep differences, which John Quincy Adams understood very well, he saw no advantage in premature recognition 
of Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, or Peru. The United States owed reciprocity and respect to the great nation of Spain, just as it did to all other nations. And so he was not going to recognize, he was not going to stick his, his thumb in the eye of the Spaniards by gratuitously recognizing the Latin American revolutionaries, or for that matter, gratuitously annexing Florida. He did it through the negotiation. And he also lectured Henry Clay that the final issue of their present struggle would be their entire independence of Spain, I have never doubted. That it was our true policy and duty, however, to take no part in that contest, I was equally clear. The principle of neutrality to all foreign wars was, in my opinion, fundamental to the continuance of our liberties and our union." Unquote. Now, it's 1821. Add to that pr principle the domestic contingencies that were raised by the financial panic of 1819, the second U.S. bank, uh, um, and the scary debate over Missouri statehood uh, with uh, 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 over slavery, the extension of slavery in the, sta in, in the, in the new, new state of Missouri, which Jefferson called the fire bell in the night, uh, and the caution uh, exhibited uh, by John Quincy Adams in his Principles and Rhetoric, and his speech about going not abroad in search of monsters to destroy, which seemed to be overdetermined. There were all kinds of reasons for the federal government, and Adams in particular, uh, to exercise prudence and caution. But to dismiss it as merely tactical, merely political, uh, uh, is either dumb or dishonest. Somebody did that. I don't have to tell you who it was. The self-described purpose of the speech, self-described, which John Quincy delivered, by the way, in an academic gown at the podium of the House of Representatives, was to reply to Edinburgh as well as to Lexington. What did that mean? Well, the former referred to Britain's Edinburgh Review, uh, a political journal which had launched the opening salvo in what came to be known as the War of the Quarterlies by posing the question, what has America done for mankind? The latter, the re reference to Lexington, referred to Henry Clay's Kentucky Plantation. So Quin Quincy Adams is drafting a speech that is aimed at the British and aimed at Henry Clay. Well, most of the address is ignored because it's a long history lecture explaining that Anglo-Saxon yeomen had once enjoyed liberties based on self-government, private property, and common law, only to lose it all after the Norman invasion of England in 1066. They then spent the rest of the Middle Ages struggling to regain their liberties. They did so finally in 1688, only to have King George III revert to policies of oppression, which defiant American colonists stood up to, to defy and champion the cause of liberty. And then the Americans, having won their independence, established a constitution that made their new republic a glorious contrast 
to martial imperial Britain. Yet, what was it, asked John Quincy, that the Edinburgh Review now proposed? It proposed, nay, insisted, that America unite herself with, quote, the liberal and enlightened part of the English nation, unquote, to crusade on behalf of reform movements in Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Latin America. And that is what set the stage for John Quincy's stirring climax in this invariably overlooked paragraph of the speech. And now, friends and countrymen, if the wise and learned philosophers of the elder world, the inventors of Congreve rockets and shrapnel shells, should find their hearts disposed to inquire what has America done for the benefit of mankind? Let our answer be this. America, with the same voice which spoke herself into existence as a nation, proclaimed to mankind the inextinguishable rights of human nature as the only lawful foundations of government. America, in the assembly of nations, has invariably held forth to them the, to, to all nations, the hand of honest friendship, equal freedom, generous reciprocity. America has uniformly spoken among them, though often to heedless and disdainful ears, the language of equal liberty, equal justice, equal rights. She has, in the lapse of nearly half a century, without a single exception, respected the independence of other nations, while asserting and maintaining her own. She has abstained from interference in the concerns of others, even when conflict has been for principles to which she clings uh, as to the last vital drop of her heart. Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will America's heart, benedictions, and prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. Why? For she knows well that one, by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the powers of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. The fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. The frontlet on her brows would no longer beam with the ineffable splendor of freedom and independence, but instead would soon be substituted an imperial diadem, flashing in false and tarnished luster the murky radiance of dominion and power. Oh, America might become the dictatress of the world. She would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. John Quincy concluded by hurtling the question back at the British. 
What have you done for mankind? Oh, material inventions are plenty, engines of war and empire. But America's glory is not dominion, but liberty. Her march is the march of the mind. She has a spear and a shield, but the motto upon her shield is freedom, independence, peace, unquote. John Quincy Adams, like George Washington, self-consciously spoke for the, for the ages and in deadly earnest. Several months later, he confided exactly that in a letter to Edward Everett. He condemned colonialism of all kinds. He even foresaw its eventual abolition in India and throughout the world. But he explicitly condemned what would later be called wars of national liberation or interference in the domestic affairs of other countries because of the, quote, inevitable tendency of a direct interference in foreign wars, even wars for freedom, to change the very foundations of our own government from liberty to power. It was imperative to blow this trumpet upon Zion because erroneous moral principle is the most fruitful of all the sources of human calamity and vice. In other words, heresy. The leaders of nations are generally but accomplished sophists, it's trained to make the worse appear the better reason, unquote. Well, in his book, Donald Kagan tells us we should not imagine John Quincy Adams a spokesman for 20th century realism. No, we shouldn't. We should treat him as an historical figure in his own time and place. But how much more egregious would it be to consider John Quincy Adams a spokesman for what passes as 21st century idealism? No, the Adams family was exactly what you would expect them to be. Turn of the 19th century, men and women of high principle who realized no less than Edmund Burke that universal norms cannot be applied to the action of states in their abstract formulation. But they must be filtered through the concrete circumstance of time and place. Now in 1822, the Monroe administration recognized five Latin American regimes. The new policy simply acknowledged fets accompli. They'd won their independence uh, and the British had also recognized them. Even the liberal Spanish parliament was prepared to accept their independence. But far more momentous was the train of events triggered by the European Congress uh, decision to permit a royal French army to cross the Pyrenees and crush the revolution in Spain. Beyond those events, which came to pass in the spring of 1823, were rumors that France might help the Spanish king reconquer Spain's overseas empire. John Quincy Adams didn't credit any of that for a moment. The Bourbons would never be so mad as to try it, and the Royal Navy so lax as to permit it. But why then, he asked, did the British Foreign Secretary, George Canning, flatter the United States by offering to collaborate in defense of the independence of Latin America? John Quincy Adams suspected a trap because George Canning, a British secretary, added that Britain and America would, of course, 
forswear any territorial ambitions of their own. It seemed the British were adopting a containment policy toward the U.S. But even more dangerous was the temptation dangled by the Edinburgh Review for Americans to entangle themselves in the political quarrels of Europe. So Adams stubbornly stood against Monroe's entire cabinet in rejecting the British offer on the grounds that it would invite them to meddle in the new world while inviting Americans to meddle in the old world. John Quincy Adams wanted the United States to issue a unilateral declaration uh, and prepared a draft for the president's annual message to Congress. Monroe was thick-headed. He, he missed the point. He repeatedly inserted back into Adams' address uh, expressions of support for European revolutions, such as the Greek revolt against the Ottoman Empire. John Quincy patiently explained the principle of reciprocity required Americans to forswear involvement in the old world if they expected Europeans to forswear involvement in the new. Well, he finally won his point, which is what made the Monroe Doctrine declared in December 1823 a tremendous exercise in self-containment and an eloquent condemnation of the fanatical streak that was heresy to the American civil religion. As John Quincy uh, Adams explained to the Russian minister at the time, the first paragraph of my paper stated the fact that the government of the United States was Republican. Second, what the fundamental principles of this government were, liberty, independence, peace. I added by way of apology for the solicitude that I felt on this subject that I considered this as the most important paper that ever went forth from my hands. John Quincy Adams matters deeply today as well as then because everybody wants to claim him, even Robert Kagan. He was certainly complicated and he expressed many viewpoints over his long career. He was a peaceful diplomat and yet an avid expansionist, and yet later an avid opponent of, uh, of expansion that might lead to the spread of slavery. Um, uh, but if, uh, but if, um, to, but to suggest that John Quincy Adams, upon becoming president in 1825, moved in Clay's direction, as Kagan does again, um, regarding ideological missions abroad, uh, is to make a grotesque exaggeration. John Quincy Adams dispatched one single agent to report on the Greek Revolution, which he did as a favor for the visiting Marquis de Lafayette. And when the agent died at sea, it was not followed up. Nor did John Quincy move in Clay's direction regarding Latin America. When Simon Bolivar convened a Congress in Panama in 1826, um, U.S. politicians argued at length as to whether to, to send delegates. Uh, well, at length, John Quincy did appoint two observers, one of whom died en route and the other arrived too late. But it didn't matter a whit. 
Bolivar didn't want U.S. participation and didn't want to rep replicate Yankee institutions. Adams understood that. Clay still hadn't learned. Instead, he wrote Bolivar a condescending letter that expressed the hope that South America would add a new triumph to the cause of human liberty and that Providence would bless her as he had her northern sister with the genius of some great and virtuous man. Well, the, the Venezuelan liberator returned the insult. He smelled a rat. He warned of American hucksters who believe, quote, the United States seems destined by Providence to plague America with torments in the name of freedom, unquote. That prescient, ironic comment did foresee what the ACR would become 70 years later, but not so long as Americans honored the wisdom and the prudence of John Quincy Adams. Thank you very much. Thank you. Walter, what a marvelous inaugural talk for the uh, uh, establishment of a John Quincy Adams uh, Society chapter uh, here at the University of Notre Dame. Um, the hour is a little bit late, but yeah. would you be willing sure. to take uh, a question or two? Uh, we need to uh, speak into the microphone uh, so uh, we can record uh, uh, all the uh, the proceedings this evening. Uh, I've got a question in the back, and I'll bring the microphone back as well. Thanks so much, Professor. Uh, I once heard an historian uh, criticizing President Obama for justifying lack of intervention. I think it was in Syria, but justifying it by saying, uh, I believe revolutionary movements are best when they're organic, uh, and this this professor said disparagingly, the last I saw those were, were French ships off the coast of, of Yorktown. So I'm curious, do, do you think was there a dash of hypocrisy in the classical ACR or, or did John Quincy Adams talk about this uh, component of the American Revolution? Or, yeah, thank you. There's more than a dash of pretense in pretty much every era of American history. We're a republic of pretense. We pretend lots of stuff. The civil religion is a great big kind of pretense. Uh, we pretend you know, we're a new chosen people in a new promised land who are carrying out God's will for humanity. We pretend that. When you think about it, it's an outrageous claim. Uh, um, uh, delusions of grandeur uh, beyond description. Um, certainly, the Monroe, let's take the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine was a colossal bluff. The United States did not have the power to enforce the Monroe Doctrine um, for a long time, decades and decades uh, after its, its proclamation. It was a kind of a statement of intention. This is what we Americans hope for. This is the neighborhood that we hope someday to inhabit. And we're kind of warning you European powers uh, that uh, if you act in such a way as to expand your system in our part of the world, colonies and empire, um, that we Americans will consider that an unfriendly act. Uh, he was careful not to issue any threats uh, or bluffs, or for that matter, even red lines. He didn't draw any red lines. Um, and the United States 
was, was, uh, continued to be uh, perfectly content to exercise reciprocity and respect for the British in Canada, all the European powers who had colonies in the Caribbean, um, uh, and uh, Russian Alaska, uh, which remained until 1867, um, and, you know, and so forth. Um, so they were all, all the, the, the existing foreign colonies were grandfathered, if you will. Um, but yes, there was, there was an element of, you know, sort of anticipation and pretense about it. Now, as to intervention, um, uh, Amer American presidents ever since, really, um, World War II uh, have been, are caught, they're caught in the system. Um, you can call it the deep state. You can call it the the uh, the um, permanent um, uh, commitments and alliances the United States has made with countries all around the world, uh, uh, and the fact that we've become a military superpower and don't don't seem to know how to you know, get a draw draw back or retreat from that uh, posture means that we're constantly being pulled in. Uh, to crises wherever they happen, uh, that, not necessarily even by choice. Obama might have wanted to really withdraw uh, from you know here and there in the Middle East in particular. He never could, uh, and he even you know uh, in places like Libya uh, got sort of tempted to you know wade back in again, um, and so uh, presidents. Uh, uh, the, re the rhetoric of presidents always becomes another pretense. They may be very sincere at the time that they're speaking in their inaugural or, or uh, other occasions. They may be very sincere uh, about their, their uh, promises and commitments um, and principles, but they can never live up to them. Um, too much is out of their own control. And what that means, of course, is that the United States has allowed other countries, other movements, other forces, other ideologies to control our behavior. I remember, I don't know, it was during the war, uh, I guess it was in the latter stages of the, uh, uh, of the Iraq war uh, around 08 or so. I, I was at a, a conference, and um, the, the, the news splashed uh, on the front page of the newspaper that Kyrgyzstan was in a crisis, and that we Americans really had to worry about this. And I, I almost cried. <laughs> I almost cried. And I'm a foreign policy expert. I actually know where Kyrgyzstan is. How, how, what, what kind of a superpower are we when we have to worry about Kyrgyzstan? And when, when they can, uh, the, the, the people in, uh, the, the Kyrgyz people are in a, in a position to affect our mood, our mood here in the United States. That is not dominance, that's not hegemony, that's slavery. So, uh, we have another question oh. back here. <laughs> Um, my question has to do with uh, the, the Protestant thought of John Quincy Adam 
And the, what I understand is the prevailing notion that Catholicism was incompatible with a Republican form of government. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until maybe Orestes Brownson you know, started to say, well, no, this is not actually right. the case. Could, was there a religious influence in his antipathy yeah. towards getting involved in Latin America? I had a feeling, I had a feeling you might ask that question. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sainting John Quincy Adams. Um, first of all, you, don't, you, don't, you can't saint a Puritan. Uh, you know, we're either all saints or nobody's a saint. Uh, but, um, uh, but, but, you know, obviously he had, he had his blind spots and his flaws and his limitations like everybody else. And he was, uh, he was a product of Quincy, Massachusetts, coming out of the Puritan tr tradition. Uh, his father, John Adams, is even reputed to have become a Unitarian in his last years. Um, uh, and uh, and their, their, their anti-Catholic prejudice was very deep, very deep. Not only, originally, of course, the, the Puritan bias was anti-Catholic, not only because of the, the, the heritage of the Re Reformation uh, Re uh, wars, uh, wars of religion in Europe, but because the French Catholics were up there constantly threatening New England. Uh, and occasionally there would be massive, when, when, during times of French and Indian wars, there might, we might be massacres. The French might sick the Indians on uh, New England settlements, and men, men, women, and children would be uh, scalped. Uh, and there was a deep hatred of the Catholics up in Canada. But then there was also a deep resentment or contempt for the whole Hispanic world a priest ridden, ignorant. Uh, half Indian uh, po populations, uh, they could never be self-governing. Um, and, uh, uh, and that prejudice, I suppose you could say, still exists to this day. You know, it takes different forms now, obviously, but uh, uh, the, the Trump phenomenon is, you know, would be one kind of an expression uh, of, that, of, that, um, of that attitude. Uh, Anti-Catholicism, uh, it was the, uh, you know, the original hatred of the American colonists and the American people, uh, and uh, it has never completely gone away. Uh, um, I, I, it, you mentioned Orestes Brownson. I love Orestes Brownson, a great scholar at Mercyhurst College, uh, Mike Federici, um, first introduced me to, to Orestes Brownson, and I then became a great fan. And I've I have I have touted him uh, not only in this book uh, but in an earlier book, um, I, the book on the Civil War era, uh, as being very important, very important. But of course, he began life as a Yankee Puritan, <laughs> so he wasn't really a kind of a cradle Catholic or a typical Catholic. And I don't know quite how you'd parse that. And Orestes Brownson, I guess you would say, never really became a m mainstream in terms of influencing Catholic opinion in the United States. He certainly didn't ever influence Protestant opinion in the United States. Um, so he, he's an odd duck. But he's very insightful as to uh, the role of, of, of free, free, freedom of religion, free exercise of religion, and the great compatibility. He says, it's the American civil religion, uh, you didn't use that phrase, but it's, it's the American uh, Republican um, uh, uh, what? ethic, ethic um, 
uh, that needs Catholicism more than any other country on earth. Uh, we have a government and a people. Uh, each one has power to check the other, uh, but there's no church. There's no established, you know, or, or a generally accepted church. Instead, there's a free market in religion in the United States, uh, and that means everybody's his or her own church. You're all your own, you know, every man his own priest, you know. Uh, Martin Luther called for it, Joseph Smith institutionalized it, uh, uh, and, uh, but that, that's, a, that's what the United States is. It's a, um, it, it, it's a, a, a free market in, in ideas in general, including religion, and that, and that means that it, it follows the same laws of public opinion, uh, and the spirit of the age and, uh, and all the rest uh, as, as politics. Um, uh, it's not really a, a, an independent um, uh, measuring stick or a check uh, on, uh, on the, you know, the, uh, uh, the behavior uh, of, uh, of citizens or on the behavior of governments. Walter, we could go on for some time, but the lease on the room uh, is almost up. Uh, and also, uh, we worked you uh, very hard today. We don't want to put you in the barn wet, as a Henry Clay would have said uh, <laughs> back in the uh, bluegrass. And also, uh, the mention of Orestes Bronson, who's interred in the crypt of the Basilica of the Holy Cross here on campus, is no probably... Way is probably a, uh, a fitting point uh, at which to end, except uh, to thank you again uh, for uh, kicking off uh, our engagement with the John Quincy Adams Society in such a learned and erudite way. Uh, and this may uh, belatedly have been your first visit to Notre Dame, uh, but I sure hope to heck it won't be the last. Thank you, Walter. <laughs> If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position.